most heavily. The execution was opposed by the European Union and the United Nations Human Rights Office, along with some members of the U.S. Supreme Court. Weather right now in Washington, D.C. is 73 degrees and mostly cloudy. In New York City, 44 degrees and overcast. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Thanks for listening. in Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez, and you're listening to the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. El Distrito Colombia here on this Friday, January 26, 2024. We also heard on latinomediacollective.com. You can find us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and today on the show, we put the spotlight on Guatemala to discuss the beginning of Bernardo Arevalo's presidency and how the Guatemalan elites, even on the day of Arevalo's inauguration, tried to overturn this historic election victory. And so with us on the show today is Marco Fonseca, who's an instructor of Latin American and International Studies in the Department of International Studies at Glendon College at York University in Canada. And he joins us today from Canada. Welcome to the show, Professor Marco Fonseca. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. And we have plenty to discuss today, particularly with just this month alone, which was a story, a one-hour conversation in and of itself. So quite a lot led us to this moment, this historic moment in Guatemalan history, a moment that almost didn't happen. The inauguration of Bernardo Arevalo from the Semilla Party almost didn't happen. His election victory almost didn't happen. Democracy in Guatemala in the past 12 months almost didn't happen. So let's start with the inauguration because obviously there's a lot to discuss here. But can you explain to us the legal shenanigans? And I'll stress that again, the legal shenanigans that took place this month alone in the lead up to the inauguration of Bernardo Arevalo. Well, on January the 14th, that's the day of the inauguration of the new president in Guatemala, 
First of all, the inauguration is supposed to take place exactly at 4 o'clock p.m. That's to say Guatemalan time, 4 o'clock p.m. By 4 o'clock p.m., Congress, not the newly elected deputies of Congress or members of Congress, but rather the outgoing members of Congress, because that's the last day that they are in power as members of the House, they are supposed to hold what is, you know, essentially called a kind of a ceremonial session, a kind of a joint session of Congress where all parties are going to be present. And the idea of that session is, first of all, to swear the president in as the new president of the country by the all members of the House or the Congress leaving office on that day, as well as by those who are staying, and then also swear in the new members of Congress who were elected in 2023. So that's supposed to happen all at four o'clock. But on that day, the day of the inauguration, the members of the right-wing parties, the block of the corrupt, the pact of the corrupt, as they're known in Guatemala, yes. decided, they made a decision, a kind of an executive, a legislative decision, which was not part of the laws in Guatemala. They're not part of the constitution. This is not part of the election law in the country at all. They decided that instead of welcoming all the newly elected members of Congress because their credentials had already been reviewed and so on, they were going to revise all credentials themselves one by one. I'm talking about over 100 members of Congress. They appointed a special commission, which was illegally done, appointing a special commission, which was going to review documentation of all newly elected members of Congress, that commission was illegal. It was illegally done. Number one, just to do that, it took half a day. Then when the commission was effectively brought together, all kinds of fights broke out between those who supported the commission and those who were against the commission. This was happening already around four o'clock. Make a long story short, right? It took them 12 hours, 12 hours to essentially bring in the new members of Congress and then eventually move everybody out of Congress, take them to the official venue where the transition was going to happen and then swear the president in. This happened after midnight on January the 15th. So essentially outside of the constitutional time frame set for the transition to take place on January the 14th. This was so bad that, listen, this is just embarrassing for the country. This is so bad that the president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, who was an invited guest of President Arevalo for his inauguration, had to leave. Oh, wow. He had to leave after like 4 or 5 p.m. He said, he, he, he sent his excuses to the newly elected president. He said, I'm so sorry, but I have to go. I mean, this was supposed to happen a while ago. It's not happening. I need to be in Chile back in Santiago by Monday. Now we're talking about a 12-hour flight from Guatemala City to Santiago in Chile. So Boric had to leave. Every other guest, including President Petro of Colombia, and so on, they waited until midnight at the venue where this event was going to happen. It was an embarrassment to the country, definitely an embarrassment to the outgoing legislative authorities. But this was just the last ditch effort to pull off what essentially was a Trumpian twist, a kind of a Trumpian strategy to try and stall if delay, if not effectively derail the transition to President Arevalo. And with other heads of state present at that time is even more incredible. So it's just a real insult to the Guatemalan public's intelligence that all this was going on on Inauguration Day. So one more thing I want to address with regards to that Inauguration Day is one particular character that I would like to you know, there's a part of me that feels embarrassed to draw parallels to Trump supporters as it pertains to election denialism. But could you tell us who is Rafael Curuchiche? And to what degree can we even draw parallels to Donald Trump supporters as it pertains to election denialism? I feel a little embarrassed in asking you this because I feel like I just had this conversation on the show a few weeks ago on the anniversary of the attempted coup in Brazil almost a year ago, which took place this month. 
There's a problematic election coming up in El Salvador next month, which is a story in and of itself. But it's unavoidable, it seems, that we have to draw these parallels between election denialism in Guatemala with what took place in the U.S. some time ago. Yes, I agree. Well, Curruchiche, his name is Rafael Curruchiche. He is the public ministries or Ministerio Público, the public ministries, head of the special prosecution against impunity. In other words, he's a special prosecutor. He's the head of something called FECI, F-E-C-I. And Rafael Curuchiche has been essentially heading all kinds of corrupt investigations. By corrupt, I mean investigations without real legal foundation. Investigations based on trumped-up charges against all kinds of figures, including, very especially, journalists. That includes other special prosecutors of his very own office. That includes lawyers who have defended activists who oppose corruption. This includes other judges who have been essentially at the forefront of the battle against corruption since 2014, 2015, when the United Nations Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, CICIG, revealed the most grotesque corruption scandals in the country. So Rafael Curuchiche has been doing the bidding of the chief of the public ministry, Consuelo Porras. And Consuelo Porras has been essentially the leading and bleeding edge of the fight against honest people in the country. So Rafael Curruchiche is the guy who, for example, in the month of September, starting as soon as the election was over on August the 20th, Rafael Curruchiche began to build a case, not only against the party of President-elect Arevalo, Semilla, but also, in fact, a case against the entire election process. He was arguing exactly following the script, following the talking points of the Trumpists in the United States. He was arguing that not only had there been a fraud committed in the elections, in the classical old sense of using false signatures, using the signatures of dead people, you know, inventing signatures and so on. No, no. He went beyond that. He argued, just like Trump did in the U.S., he argued that the machines that were recently purchased by the election authorities to help him tabulate, count the vote electronically, at least in two special districts, in the capital city and in the central department or central state of Guatemala. So because those are the most populated districts, so they needed you know, special machines, special software to help them tabulate all the votes, count all the votes and do so expeditiously so that the results could be available relatively quickly. Curuchiche argued that the company that sold the software to Guatemala and the Guatemalan election authorities had in fact pre-programmed the machines to effectively produce something like five votes for Semilla for every vote that was effectively given to them. Election fraud by means of the machinery, exactly like Trump argued happened in the United States. It almost sounds like the Dominion case and this conspiracy theory that machines were the cause of this. It's the exact same. It's It's a carbon copy of the case of the Dominion machines in the U.S. In the case of Guatemala, it was called the TREP system. T-R-E-P, the TREP system, which was, you know, sold to Guatemala by a Colombian company. However, this was all, again, false, completely and totally a fantasy concocted by Rafael Curuchiche and his special prosecutors, all under the authority of two judges in Guatemala who, together with Curuchiche and together with Porras, have all been added to the United States list of corrupt officials in Central America, called the Engel List. These are Cynthia Monterroso and uh, a couple of other corrupt judges. So based on a corrupt judge's orders, Curuchiche went ahead in September and effectively and illegally went into the offices of the election authorities. He hauled out 
the boxes containing all the votes of citizens and without any constitutional or election law authority, he took all this stuff to back to the public ministry and they claimed to have done an examination of the votes one by one by one by one. On December the 3rd is when they wrapped up the whole case on December the 3rd and Kuruchiche went on a press conference surrounded by a whole bunch of other officials in Guatemala and lo and behold, he effectively declares the election results void and null by law. It was a scandal. It was insane. This was the result of a concocted case against the entire election process. What he was hoping, obviously, is that, well, the elections were going to be canceled and so on. And to do this, however, they needed to be able to either weaken or undermine or demolish the election authorities. And to do that, the election authorities in Guatemala enjoy the same rights and privileges as members of the Supreme Court or members of the Constitutional Court. They have the right to something called pre-trial hearings or pre-trial procedures, which means they cannot be just immediately put on trial. There's a process that has to be followed. So what Kuruchiche wanted was Congress, based on his so-called evidence, the so-called case for fraud in the elections, he wanted Congress to vote unanimously or in a majority against the election authorities, lift their pre-trial privileges, put them on trial, and then proceed to immediately designate new election authorities. All of this done very quickly so that the new election authorities could then declare the results of the election null and void by law. And guess what? He got it. 108 members of Congress, the old Congress, the 2023 Congress, voted, 108 of them out of like 150 or 60, voted to lift the immunity of the election authorities. And of course, by the time they did that, five or four members of the election tribunal went into exile. They left Guatemala. They knew that they were going to be prosecuted spuriously and illegally. So they left. So what happened then? And I'm going to wrap this up right about here. (laughs) Next day, or a few days later, the U.S. stepped in. Because the U.S. has been stepping into this from day one. There are complex reasons why the U.S. has been doing this. But the point is that the U.S., through the State Department, stepped in and they declared 300 Guatemalans, including the 108 members of Congress who voted to lift the immunity of the Supreme Election Tribunal magistrates, they declared them all part of the Engel list, corrupt members of Congress and government. This really shook the country. It shook the Supreme Court. It shook the Constitutional Court and so on. Essentially, the U.S. forestalled the coup that was unfolding at that moment by early December that was almost inevitably going to happen, almost inevitably. But if the U.S. had not stepped in, this would have been a foregone conclusion. If the U.S. had not said, not only are we going to add 300 people to the list of corrupt officials, we're going to add the president's best friend, his lover, to the corruption officials list as well. And we're going to add, you know, just about everybody who is engaged in stuff. So that's one thing. And then, of course, outside of Congress, on the streets of Guatemala, protests were raging. Indigenous peoples were leading a 106-day-long action in the country, right outside the offices of the public ministry, effectively defending the vote of the people. That was, that's really the story here. Incredible. And to prove your point, even as we have this conversation today, as recently as this month, according to Reuters, former Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate has been barred from entering the U.S. over allegations of, quote, his involvement in significant corruption, according to the U.S. State Department, citing, quote, credible information indicating Giamate accepted bribes in exchange for the performance of his public functions during his tenure as president of Guatemala, end quote. So that sort of leads us to a very fine example 
of corruption in Guatemala, which is the red carpet scandal. But I also have to say that him being barred by the State Department also kind of reeks of Juan Orlando Hernandez, the former leader of the coup government in Guatemala from several years ago, who's being charged with, you know, running a narco state, you know, basically in Guatemala. But that's another story in and of itself. It's another parallel we could draw with the corrupts in Guatemala with, you know, counterparts in other parts of Latin America. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show today is because you name names. That's the fun part here. One of the people that you mentioned was Consuelo Porras. Consuelo Porras. The Attorney General of Guatemala. And I've had the pleasure of speaking with former anti-corruption attorney Juan Francisco Sandoval. Mm -hmm. I've had the pleasure of speaking with a few indigenous activists who are unfortunately in exile in the U.S. and other parts of the world. And all of them, independent of one another, have cited Consuelo Porras as being one of the influencing forces, shall we say, with leading to several of these activists and lawyers into exile. To what degree would you hold her responsible for this? Because there's several other factors and several other individuals who could point to leading to all these people being in exile, but to what degree would you hold her responsible? Oh, I mean, she's chiefly responsible for what is going on here. Consuelo Porras got to power in 2018. She was appointed. She was selected out of a list of five candidates to become chief of the public ministry in the country, essentially the equivalent of the attorney general in the United States at the federal level. But I want to make a point about this because this is important. She was able to become the candidate of Jimmy Morales at the time, which was also another corrupt president in the country. Yeah. Okay. But she became the candidate of Jimmy Morales. Needless to say, because they did a bit of a quid pro quo. In other words, you appoint me, you select me chief of the public ministry, and I am, believe me, I'm going to protect your interests. And when Jamate renewed her mandate as chief of the public ministry, no doubt the same happened around things like the Alfombra Magica scandal, which we are probably going to talk about. But since 2018, Consuelo Porras was able to consolidate power by transforming herself into essentially a defender, a defender of the interests of corrupt politicians. In 2018, she began a campaign, which in English we can call lawfare, a campaign of legal warfare against people who were engaged in the prosecution of crimes against corruption and so on. Very famous names, Virginia Laparra, for example. It's an important judge who was former special prosecutor of CICIG in the city of Shela or Quetzaltenango in Guatemala. Claudia Gonzalez, another important special prosecutor, which was criminalized under the public ministry led by Consuelo Porras. Judges like Jasmine Barrios or Juan Galvez, who were especially appointed judges to prosecute some of the most delicate cases of corruption in the country. So Judge Galvez, for example, was the judge that was overseeing the case known as La Linea in Guatemala. La Linea was only the biggest corruption scandal case disclosed by the investigations of the CICIG back in 2015, the biggest corruption scandal in the country. Under Consuelo Porras, all of them became targets of prosecution. And the usual accusation that was leveled against them was, quote, abuse of authority. That was the usual thing. In other words, by putting people on preventative jail because of fears that people were going to flee the country if investigations were initiated against them. So judges very often would just place people under preventative jail, not house arrest because they would just flee the country. So preventative jail. And sometimes the cases would just become highly delayed. And so it would take a long time to gather evidence, to gather testimony, to initiate the actual trials. So people did languish in jail for two, three, four years, not because 
the judges were not trying to speed things up. Very often, it was the accused themselves who were delaying the cases by submitting appeal after appeal after appeal against judges, against prosecutors, against lawyers, arguing that they needed to recuse themselves because they had an interest in prosecuting them, and so on and so forth. So the reason... It's another parallel to Donald Trump and his fight against all these cases. And then say that they were kept in jail for so long and an unfair kind of condition. It was they who delayed the cases by submitting 100 appeals, you know, appeal after appeal after appeal, delaying all the cases. So Consuelo Porras has been instrumental in freeing people who deserve to be in jail or in prosecuting people who were doing the right thing, the legal thing to do. So this is the job she was appointed for, and she has fulfilled it to the letter, okay? And a paradigmatic case of this is, of course, the case of the magic carpet, the case of the alfombra magica, the magic carpet. This is a case that was initially sort of disclosed, revealed, published by the New York Times. Very, very interesting. The New York Times disclosed the case of Ukrainian and Russian investors in Guatemala who, with links to mining companies in the country, they were looking to get a concession in one of the country's most important ports to be able to get their goods out of the country. But what they wanted was to essentially, you know, skip all the red tape. They did not want to go through all the requirements needed to be able to get a concession in one of the ports, a lease of a piece of land, and to fulfill all the requirements to do all the environmental inspections that were needed and so on. They did not want any of this. So this this group of Russian Ukrainian investors decided to follow or to take the expedited route to approval for their project. How did they decide to expedite this? Well, reportedly, they effectively stashed a very large amount of money in US dollars, rolled it up into a red carpet. They went to the residence of the Guatemalan president, Jamate, and they knocked on the door and they reportedly handed over a red carpet stuffed with money to the president. Okay? With the an purpose. An actual carpet. An actual carpet. It was like a gift for like the president sort of thing. The idea was to get Jamate to expeditiously approve this concession of land in one of the country's most important ports to these investors. Now, whether they were going to use that land legitimately, that remains to be investigated. Whether it was going to be used for import-export activities for their mining connections, we don't really know. This is all very suspicious. The point is that when the New York Times broke the story and in Guatemala, still under Consuelo Porras, right? Juan Francisco Sandoval, you've interviewed him, right? Juan Francisco Sandoval was at the time still the chief of the special prosecutor's office inside the public ministry, the FESI. He's the predecessor of Curruchiche. So Juan Francisco Sandoval initiated in 2022 an investigation. He was just doing the preliminary steps to see if there was anything for real in this case of the magic carpet that was you know, revealed by the New York Times. Within weeks of him initiating his investigations into the red carpet scandal, which of course means investigating Jamate himself, he was fired. He was fired by Consuelo Porras. He was let go of the FESI, the chief, being chief of FESI in Guatemala. And not only that, yeah. he himself became the subject of an investigation. This is a case of investigating the investigators, but of course doing so in a corrupt way. So what Consuelo Porras was doing is fulfilling her side of the bargain, which is to say to protect Jamate by any means necessary, including obviously by prosecuting her own people. In this case, Juan Francisco Alfaro. So what happened is that Juan Francisco Alfaro, like many other prosecutors, like many journalists, like many lawyers, 
went into exile and he lives in Washington DC right now and is awaiting anxiously the time when he can go back to Guatemala. Consuelo Porras has been instrumental in maintaining the power of corrupt politicians, corrupt elites, corrupt presidents, Jimmy Morales, Yamate. It is for that reason and for so many other reasons that the newly elected president in Guatemala, the newly inaugurated president of Guatemala, Bernardo Arevalo, has asked Consuelo Porras before, the, during the election, after the election, before the inauguration, and now after the inauguration, to resign. He has publicly asked Consuelo Porras to resign because, well, she has been at the service of corruption and impunity. And the latest on this is he called her to have a meeting with him, with Arevalo, to the president's office January the 23rd. And he sent her a letter to have a meeting with Arevalo, okay? He sent this letter about a week ago. She's not replied. She's not responded to the letter. She's kept silent about it. And as of right now, we don't know if she's going to show up. My goodness, that's a lot of information there to process. And even then, we've only hit the tip of the iceberg as far as corruption in Guatemala in the last 12 months alone, in the last few years of the Giamante administration alone. It's just a tip of the iceberg, but it gives people an idea of how profound and how embedded the Pacto de Corruptos is in Guatemala. So we're going to take a break right here. We're speaking with Marco Fonseca, who's an instructor of Latin American and International Studies in the Department of International Studies at Glennie College, York University in Canada. This is the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. We're going to take a quick break right here. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned. That was Rebecca Lane, and you're listening to the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Reminding everyone, you can follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. 
Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and we're speaking about the new presidency of Bernardo Arevalo in Guatemala. And we're joined today by Marco Fonseca, who's an instructor of Latin American and International Studies in the Department of International Studies at Glennon College, York University in Canada. So let's discuss what has been referred to as the Guatemalan Spring in Guatemala, because this is the historical context that we need to understand why the pactos of corruptos in Guatemala have been so fervent in preventing Bernardo Arevalo from entering office in the first place. And where would you put the starting point to what has been referred to as the second Guatemalan Spring also as well? Because all these things in recent times has led to this new moment in Guatemalan history. I think the key moment of all of this is 2015. That's the year when, again, the United Nations Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala revealed the absolutely rotten core of the political class in Guatemala, as well as the business class in Guatemala. They revealed the links between politicians and businessmen in the country and effectively also revealed cases, as I was mentioning before, like La Linea massive corruption scandals involving everybody from the president all the way down to ministers, all the way down to politicians in Congress, all the way down to the private sector as well. So 2015 marks a watershed in Guatemala's recent history because the citizens of the country, namely in 2015, the urban middle classes in the country, they completely lost patience with the government. They went into the streets in massive numbers. They occupied the central square of the country in Guatemala City, as well as public squares throughout the country. And for months, they organized protests, massive protests, demanding the resignation of the president at the time, Otto Perez Molina, the vice president at the time, Roxana Baldetti, both were the presidents and vice presidents of the Partido Popular, the PP party, as it was known then. That was only the latest party at the time, elected in 2012. It was supposed to last until 2016, early 2016. That was just the latest political party in a long list of corrupt political parties that have been governing Guatemala since essentially 1985. So a long list of corrupt political parties in power, all of them doing, and I'm going to just synthesize this as quickly as I can, doing two things. Number one, effectively exploiting the state, exploiting resources, sucking the state, you know, cleaning the state of money, resources, institutions, people. By people, I mean appointing family, appointing friends, whatever, regardless of qualifications. The state became a piñata, right? From essentially about 1985 all the way to 2023. So that was one thing. The other was to effectively grant concessions to both national investors and international investors. It's in the last 20 years that the economy known as extractivism, the economy of extractivism, an economy that essentially revolves around the extraction of minerals, the building of hydro dams, the planting of monocrops like soy, like sugarcane, and so on. Massive expansion in extractivist and mega projects throughout the country, most of which, I would dare say, most of which conceded to investors private investors of Guatemala, as well as transnational investors by means of favors, by means of, of fraud, by means of bribes, all of this going into the pockets of politicians. So they've been doing this for over 20 years. In 2015, all of this was revealed. The state was left naked, transparent for everybody to see, and people were not happy. And they overthrew the government of Otto Perez Molina and Roxana Valdetti, something that had not happened in Guatemala in decades. In fact, since 1944, they overthrew the government elected at the time. And that is what 
begins the new spring in Guatemala because everybody in 2015 was remembering that 2015 was similar to what happened in 1944. Yes. And what happened in 1944 is that, you know, Juan José Arevalo, the father of the current president of Guatemala, Bernardo Arevalo, was elected president of the country, initiating what is known as the Guatemalan Spring from 1944 to 1954. And that's the only real democratic period in Guatemala's history since the inauguration of the Republic in the 1820s. So people had strong memories of what happened in Guatemala in 1944. And so comparisons were made in 2015. This is similar to what's going on then. And it's also important to say that it is in 2015 when Bernardo Arevalo, the son of Juan José Arevalo, became politically active. It is in 2015 that Bernardo Arevalo essentially, you know, yes. got a political consciousness. He went to the plaza, to the square, and he was demonstrating with people protesting against corruption, demanding the resignation of corrupt officials, demanding, you know, that something new be done. Nothing, unfortunately, happened in 2016. A new corrupt government was elected, but the seeds were planted, the semillas were planted, and in 2019, a new government is going to be elected. That's when Bernardo Arevalo becomes politically active. He joins Semilla Party. He's one of the founding members of the Semilla Party. And in 2019, they fielded candidates for Congress. And in fact, they managed to get five of them elected. One of them was Bernardo Arevalo. Bernardo Arevalo then becomes a member of Congress until 2023, when he also decides in early 23 to run for the presidency. Nobody thought that there was a chance in hell for Bernardo Arevalo to be elected president of Guatemala. Nobody in 2023 had the slightest suspicion that this could happen. So a number of factors came into place in 2023 and the party led by Bernardo Arevalo went from seventh place in the election polls to being number one on June 25th. Not number one, to be you know one of the two parties elected to the presidency for 2024, 2028. So people call this the new spring because not only the fact that this is a new presidency dedicated to fighting corruption, fighting impunity and so on, but because Arevalo has himself said that he stands on the shoulders of his father, that he intends to, in one way or another, live up to the expectations of people, that he is going to make this government a government of the people. That's what he said. And so he has explicitly invoked all the symbology, all the symbolism of the 1944-1954 period. So to call what's going on in Guatemala, what is beginning to happen in Guatemala now in 2024, a new spring is actually not that far-fetched. It actually does make sense, but it depends on whether this government lives up to its promises. Thank you for crystallizing what is being referred to as the second Guatemalan Spring. And thank you for mentioning the importance of this extractivist economy that has plagued not only Guatemala, but other parts of Central America. As a matter of fact, we just did a show last week on Panama and how the Panamanian public there in 2023 pushed back and actually won an environmental victory, pushing back against mining companies in that part of Central America particularly Canadian mining companies, Yes, just, just to note. So hopefully that'll have a ripple effect, or at the very least, environmentalists and activists in Guatemala will take note of what took place in Panama towards the end of last year. And so that sort of brings up one of the major challenges that the Arevalo administration will need to face, not only because of what took place in Panama, but also you mentioned this on your Twitter account as well, is the issue of mining in Guatemala. And can you expand upon this a little bit more? Because this also gives us an opportunity, the same opportunity that we had last week on the show, to point out that while we often point out U.S. imperialism for good reason in places like Central America, we also have to point out that Canadian imperialism in Latin America, in places like Guatemala, is equally as nefarious. So this is one of the challenges that is coming up for the Arevalo administration. So 
in like the five minutes that we have left, can you explain or expand upon this issue? Well, I want to give you a case in point, something that I've been tweeting about and you probably read as well. But there's a lot of mining going on in Guatemala, just like there's a lot of mining going on in Central America and the rest of Latin America. And we're talking about mining for metals, from gold, silver to other metals in Guatemala. So there's a, a lot of this. But one mining company that has been sort of relatively active in the country is a company called Levar Resources. I believe that's the name, Levar Resources. That's a, an affiliate company owned by a Canadian company in turn. This company is interested in a mining project in a little town of Guatemala. It's a very small little town called Cerro Blanco. It's in a municipality called Asuncion Mita, in a department of the country, a state of the country called Jutiapa, which borders El Salvador and Guatemala. So down is southeast of the country, bordering El Salvador. This mining company is going to be an open pit mine, like many of these mining projects are in Guatemala. And they've been wanting to do this for a number of years now, okay, for a number of years. But a couple of years ago, they had what is called a community consultation in this particular municipality that I'm talking about. They had a community consultation. They're known as consultas de buena fe. So good faith consultations are mandated by the International Organization of Labor Convention number 169, I believe it is. So it's a mandated legal requirement that investments like this be approved by the affected communities in places like Jutiapa in Guatemala. And so a couple of years ago, they had a consultation in this community asking the people, do you approve of this mining project by this company, this Canadian-owned company in your location? And they said, no, no. And it was unequivocal. So they said, no, we don't approve of this. However, the mining company and their representatives in Guatemala appealed the results of this, effectively ignoring them. And they went to the highest court of the country, the highest court of the country. And the highest court of the country, the constitutional court, ruled against the results of the consultation, the results of this municipal plebiscite. And they effectively gave the mining company the go-ahead with the project against the will of the people in the locality. And this is a problem, you see, because the government of Bernardo Arevalo just inaugurated has a government plan, has a, you know, a plan for the next four years. And they are saying explicitly that in this plan, they are going to put environmental and climatic interests as well as community interests, that they're going to give priority to them, that they are going to you know, be very careful in terms of the impact that these kinds of projects are going to have on communities. However, four days after Bernardo Arevalo was inaugurated as president of the country, four days later, on the 18th of January, the Canadian mining company uploaded to its web page an announcement made by the Ministry of Natural Resources in Guatemala saying that their environmental study that they, the company itself, had done to carry out their activities, their mining activities in this little town in Jutiapa, had been approved by the Ministry of Natural Resources. And therefore, the project had effectively a green light. This is 18th of January, just a few days ago. So this is a test case for the government of Bernardo Arevalo. This is going to be a test case for the new Guatemalan Spring. This is going to put to the test the government plan that says explicitly, and Bernardo Arevalo actually just published in the country's national newspaper, the AGN, Bernardo Arevalo just published a press conference where he says, in my government, we are going to give environmental 
and climatic considerations priority in our country. Now, I am waiting the results of what's going to happen here. Is Fernando Arevalo going to allow mining companies like this Canadian mining company to go against the will of the people locally who are saying no to mining? And they're not saying no to mining because they're ignorant. They're saying no to mining because mining has terrible environmental consequences Yes, wherever they go, right? Yes. And what Guatemalans are particularly concerned, there are many concerns. One concern they are, like it's overriding for a lot of Guatemalans, and in fact for Latin Americans, is the water pollution, the result of contamination of water resources in the country. And the province where this mining project is to go ahead, right? This province of Jutiapa in Guatemala is a province where they are having serious problems with water supply for local communities. And if a mining company comes in and begins to pump out water from reservoirs or worst, they begin using water from rivers for their mining activities. And not only for that, also for their waste, for their tailings ponds. If they use this uh, water resources for these purposes, it means literally no water for communities. That's the issue here. And I'll cite the same example that I mentioned last week in the Panama episode, which is the Animas River leakage of 2015 in Colorado, which left this fluorescent yellow yeah. color on the river. And who knows how much long-term damage yeah. that caused almost 10 years later. So unfortunately, we're out of time. But just on the issue of mining in Guatemala alone tells us that we need to have Marco Fonseca back on the show in the future as that issue continues to develop. So in the meantime, we've been speaking with Marco Fonseca, who's an instructor of Latin American and International Studies in the Department of International Studies at Glennon College at York University in Canada. I strongly encourage everyone to follow Marco Fonseca on Twitter if you can. And for those who speak Spanish, he also has a subset called Refundación Ya, which I would also encourage people to check out as well. But in the meantime, Marco Fonseca, it's been fun. It's been informative. Thank you very much for being on the show with us. Thanks for having me. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone you can follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the show. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.
WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. The International Court of Justice in The Hague issued a landmark emergency ruling today, ordering Israel to take additional steps to prevent harm to Palestinian civilians in Gaza, but stopping short of calling for a ceasefire. At a hearing this morning, the court's president said the ICJ confirmed that it does have jurisdiction in the case against Israel, which was brought by South Africa. The ICJ said urgent measures should be taken to prevent the possibility of genocide. A full ruling on South Africa's claim that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza could take years. Israel's offensive in Gaza has killed more than 26,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, and has displaced the vast majority of the population. The ICJ's provisional order for Israel to reduce civilian harm is considered binding, but the court has no means to enforce it. The governments of Iraq and the United States announced yesterday that they expect to begin talks soon to wind down the presence of a U.S.-led military coalition in the country. The coalition had been formed in 2014 to fight the Islamic State group. The announcement comes as U.S. forces have repeatedly struck targets in Iraq that they say are linked to Iran-backed militias, though the United States claims the timing of the talks is coincidental. The U.S. strikes came in retaliation for dozens of attacks by Iran-backed militias against U.S. military outposts in both Iraq and Syria. Most recently, militants fired missiles at a U.S. airbase in western Iraq on Saturday, and the U.S. retaliated with three strikes on Tuesday. Iraqi leaders have called for the withdrawal of coalition troops in the past, particularly following the U.S. assassination of an Iranian general in Iraq in 2020. In domestic news, a bill that would prevent anyone under the age of 16 from using social media was approved by the Florida House this week in an overwhelmingly bipartisan vote. The bill must now be approved by the state Senate and signed by Governor DeSantis before becoming law. The bill would prohibit anyone under the age of 16 from opening new social media accounts and mandates that platforms remove any accounts that children under the age of 16 may already have. If passed, the law would be one of the strictest social media restrictions in the country to focus on what is increasingly seen as a threat to youth. According to the Pew Research Center, approximately 95% of kids aged 13 to 17 are on social media, with more than a third of them admitting, quote, they use social media almost constantly. The White House today ordered a pause in permits for new natural gas export terminals in the United States as pressure from climate activists grows on President Biden. The Energy Department said the move will not impact export projects that have already been approved and wouldn't immediately affect U.S. energy flows to Europe or Asia. U.S. natural gas exports have skyrocketed since Russia's invasion of Ukraine and reached record highs last year. The pause in export permits will allow the government to study how natural gas projects are approved and possibly update criteria that measure economic and climate impacts. And Alabama executed a death row inmate last night using a new method, nitrogen.